I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the 14th chapter of Mark's Gospel tonight. Chapter 14, the Gospel of Mark. I want us to focus our attention there a little while. I want to read a few verses out of John 12. You may want to turn. That's the same account, but John gives a little insight that Mark does not. John number 12, Mark number 14. There's one verse that I want to call our attention to. It's found in 2 Samuel, chapter number 24, the very last chapter. Let's just, just turn back there a minute. I thought about just quoting this verse, but I, I sense the Lord wants us to just sort of comment a little here. Second Samuel, the 24th chapter, there's one verse, and uh, this verse of Scripture brings David in focus before us. King David, my hero of the Old Testament, I love King David, man after God's own heart. In this one verse, it, it puts David in a good light. In fact, it's one of his high hours here. Uh, I think about what he's doing and my admiration and respect for him increases when I look at this. But prior to this, leading up to this, is it's one of the low hours in this man of God's life. You students are aware that what's taking place in the 24th chapter of 2 Samuel, and you'll see the connection. I'm not, I preach an entire sermon from here, but uh, I just want to read something. It'll, it'll tie in what I want to talk about in a moment. But to get a little, little bit additional insight, uh, David is confessing something here. There's two outstanding sins charged publicly against David. In fact, David publicly confesses both of them. I preached on David, as those of you that were here Sunday night, talking about brokenness being the, the key to personal revival. But here, David, and I won't turn, but you, you're aware the other place, it's in Second Samuel, it's in chapter 12. Just listen to what David said. He, when he was confronted by the man of God with the Word of God, so it was God confronting him. He said, I have sinned. His predecessor, Saul, would always cover. You never find David covering up. Brokenness means openness. The opposite of brokenness is when I, you know, I'm into cover-up and hiding something. David's never that way. But in this passage, David, in verse number 10, look what he says down in the middle of the verse. He said, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. I want you to think about the contrast here now. I have sinned. That's not to minimize the wicked sin of adultery, of course not. But when he was confronted by God about his sin with Bathsheba, he said, I have sinned. But here, David said, I have sinned greatly. Last line in verse 10, he said, I've done very foolishly. Verse 17, listen to him again, talking about this same act here. He said, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. Now, I want you to just think about that for a moment. It'll be a little more meaningful what I want to try to point out here. When I was in the pastorate, when I, I left the pastorate, well, the pastorate in Indianapolis, when I left them over there, there where I live, uh, there was about 14 to 15 young preacher, preacher boys. There was a, a couple schools nearby, and there were some students there. And I called one of them, came to me, and he's struggling a little with this. He said, Pastor, I don't quite understand this. He said, David, when he committed that terrible sin of adultery and took that man's wife and had that man's life taken, when God confronted him, he said, said I've sinned. But he said, here, man, I've sinned greatly. I've done foolishly. I have done wickedly. And he said, Pastor, I struggle with this. He said, it, 
When you compare what he had done earlier when he just said, I've sinned, and what he did here, he says, it seems that doesn't fit. Listen. He said, it appears to me that David only took a census here. Had the people counted. And that's what he did. In fact, if you read this and think about it, when David is provoked to do this, he says to the captain of his host, Joab, he sends him with his helpers out to do it. And Joab even protests. He's got more insight here than King David has. I don't like Joab. If you like Joab, pardon me, but I don't like him. If I was going on vacation next week, Joab's not the kind of fellow I'd take with me. Amen? I just don't like to be around a fellow like Joab. But he's got more insight here than David. Because he protests. He said, would to God would give you a, a hundredfold more people than you got. But why does the king delight in this thing? Now you say, Brother Hurt, what in the world, what was so serious about taking a census? Well, see, when you start reading this, look at verse number one. I didn't mean to spend so much time, but I need to say something to make a more meaningful what I want to point out here. When it says he moved David against him to go number Israel and Judah, you might think, just reading this casually, the he here refers to God. But that's not God doing that. God's not the author of evil. Never has been, never will be. And if you'd read 1 Chronicles 21, and, and when, when that account, listen to verse 1, talking about this same incident, he says, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. See, he's catering to David's pride. Pride's the thing that made the devil the devil. It's called the snare of the devil. And David, in a weak moment, he fell for it, and, and, and he catered to his pride and his ego, and David got to thinking, man, I've got a big army. Go out and count them. And the danger is, if we're not careful, is to lean on the size of the army and forget the arm of the Lord. I've got something I can lean on now. And David fell into this, and Joab followed his command. Nine months and twenty days later, he comes back, verse 8, and says to David, you got 800,000 in Israel, valiant men. you got 500,000 in Judah. And immediately, verse 10, David's heart smote him. That he'd numbered the people. David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I've done very foolishly. And verse 11 gives us an insight why David is, is broken and confessing like this. For, it says, or you could use the word, because. When David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, that's David's personal preacher we could say, saying, go and say unto David, thus saith the Lord. I offer thee three things, choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him, said to him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in the land, or will thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee, or there be three days pestilence in the land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said to Gad, I'm in a great strait. Let us fall now in the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning, even the time appointed, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. One man lost his life and the other sin, actually. But 70,000, less than three days, dropped dead. Because of this arrogant sin, the sin of pride David has committed. When he says from Dan to Beersheba, that'd be like saying going from one end of the land to the other. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was with the thrashing place of Arona the Jebusite. David spake to the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I've sinned, I've done wickedly. 
But these sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. Words like that and an attitude and action like that's what causes me to respect David. Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, rear an altar to the Lord in the thrashing floor of Arona the Jebusite. David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arona looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. Narona went out, bowed himself before the king on his face up on the ground. Narona said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the thrashing floor of thee to build an altar to the Lord, and the, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Arona said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice, thrashing instruments, other instruments of the oxen for wood. All of these things did Arona as the king give to the king. And Arona said to the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said to Arona, Nay, no, I'll surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the thrashing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. I call our attention to that very instructive, insightful statement that David makes to this Jebusite. He said, when he had an opportunity... To worship cheaply, he said, I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. I raise a question. What does it cost us to serve God? Do we insult Him with something cheaply or something that's cost us nothing? Try to get by without... Given that which he's worthy of? David said, I wouldn't do that. David knows better. David knows God. David knew that'd be an insult if he'd have took that and cost him nothing. And when you understand the price he paid, it was a, not just a fair price, it was a rather hefty price he paid. And he worshipped his God. In the Gospel of John, let's turn there now. I didn't mean to take so much time, but I'd sense the Lord want me to just talk a little. That'll bring something in focus here now. John chapter number 12. Let's break in here for two or three verses. About verse 3, it says, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly. Keep that in mind. Very expensive. Very costly. And with this, she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, had the bag, and bare what was put therein. Now my purpose for reading John's account, Mark doesn't, doesn't name the person that does this. John, as you students know, John's gospel was not written when the synoptic gospels was written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke was written along together, and years later John comes along, and oftentimes Spirit of God has John to give a little added insight. He does it here. Oh, Judas sounds so pious. Well, that could have been sold. That's a waste. He didn't deserve that. He's not worth that. You've wasted that on him. He said, we, well, I could have given that to the poor. He's a treasure, see? That's what he says. He has the bag. The word there is B-A-R-E. Doesn't mean he. I heard a fellow say one day he was, he, he, he was bearing the bag, carrying it around. That doesn't mean that. That's not what that says. The word bear there can be translated. He pilfered in it. He stole from it. Helped himself to it. And the thief that he was, the Greedy thief sat there and pretended to love Jesus and criticizing one that's so loving him that she's lavishing this expensive gift on our Lord. And old greedy Judas said, that's a waste. Now turn with me to Mark's account. 
I'm going to ask you to stand. That'll change our position. If somebody's about to go to sleep, it'll wake you up a little. Would you stand with me? <clears throat> I want to just preach a little while from one of the, a, a real well-known passage scripture. You hear a lot of sermons from here. But the Lord has directed my attention to just come and talk to our hearts. Notice I include my own heart. Passage that throughout all of my ministry, one of the first sermons I ever attempted to preach, oh, coming up on 42 years ago, was along here in this scripture. Verse number three, let's sort of break in since we've read John's account and just sort of get a a little more insight here. We're told here, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spike, and it very precious. She break the box and poured it on his head. Now, there's no contradiction, of course, in the Bible. John says his feet. He looks from one view, and in those days when they were seated, they wasn't like we are at a table with our feet on the table. He sort of reclined, and so his feet was exposed and his head this way. So she anointed both his feet and his head. Oftentimes, it was just an act of courtesy. they just take a drop and and uh, and the guests would just be anointed, but this goes way beyond an act of courtesy. She didn't intend to put any of that back in that bottle. She break the thing, and the very box it's in is expensive itself. If you know anything about alabaster, so she's break it and she's poured it on his head. There were some that had indignation. Keep Judas in mind. He started it, but it's uh, unfortunately, it's plural here. He's influenced some. There were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? It might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have given to the poor. And they, plural now, and they murmured against her. Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. You have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, you may do them good, but me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She's come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Verily I say to you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Thank you, and you may be seated. Since I've already spent some time in the other passage, I'm going to lay aside a little of the preliminary opening remarks that I engage in often in starting this text. Suffice it to say that when these critics of her, uh, murmuring, complaining against her, our Lord defends her. He said to them, let her alone. He asked a question, of course, if they'd had any decency, they'd have been embarrassed to answer. He said, why trouble you her? Well, they're not going to tell the motivation of their murmuring. So they didn't ask, answer his question. But then he makes this statement. He said, she's wrought a good work on me. Pretending to care for the poor, he said, they'll be around always. You're not going to have me available always. He said, she's done what she could. One of my heroes of history is D.O. Moody. Mr. Moody said, When my life is over, my ministry is finished. And if someone could stand over my remains, and he put it this way, and honestly say, He hath done what he could. Mr. Moody said, I'd rather that be said about me than have a monument erected to the sky in my honor. She had done what she could. And I want to pick up tonight on something the Lord has, has spoken to my own heart about. This was not a sermon when I first began to think about it. I didn't even think about uh, even using it as shared with others. I was in a motel room. I was reading in my daily time of reading. I try to read in my daily time different parts of the Word of God so I can stay in touch with different parts of the Bible on a daily basis. And my time in the Gospels brought me to this portion. I do not claim to hear God audibly. I, I'm not implying and inferring that. I, but I, I am saying that reading this, and I, I, pardon me for being so personal, I just read aloud. And uh, it just leaped off of the page, this expression here. It just really 
became God's Word to my heart in a forceful way. And when he said this to them, She hath wrought a good work on me. I want to put it in a question tonight in the way that he talked to me about it. And my question for us to think about tonight is this. How can I, how can you tell what you do is being done for Jesus? Listen to it carefully now. Oftentimes what we're engaged in may just be, you know, religious activity. Could be church-centered. Could be because we're in a, uh, serving on a committee or in a group. Oh, no, it's not true of Mary here. Our Lord said to those that's, that's complaining about it, He said, what she has done, it's Christ-centered. She has done it on me, for me, and you let her alone. Judas said it's a waste. In essence, he said it's wonderful. I look for that. I, I commend her for that. And he said to my needy heart in that motel room, you seem to say, why don't you take a little inventory, preacher? Why are you away from your family? Why do you run up and down across this country? What's your, what's your aim? What's your goal? Why do you do what you do? Do you have some ulterior motive? Who are you trying to please? What are you trying to possess? What are you trying to get hold of? Oh, you say you said all of that? Yeah, and a whole lot more too. I'm just telling you, most of the sermons he lets me share with others, it's his word to my heart first. So I, I've faced it. I've tried to face it honestly. I've looked at it. I, I've been told if you're going to take a text, don't take it away from its context until you've tried to find out primarily what's related to it. And what are the characteristics of a work that is Christ-centered? I mean, how, how could you recognize what you're doing? Indeed, it's being done. I'm not just talking to the pastors and evangelists and the missionaries. I'm not just talking, quote, unquote, to the, you know, to the ordained servants tonight. The, the people of God's called servants of God in the Bible more than once. Listen to what he says in the Colossian letter, writing to the, the Christians at Colossae there. He says, listen, chapter 3 and verse 24 says, For ye serve the Lord Christ. Not serving a committee. You're not serving a church. You're not serving a denomination. You're serving Christ, he says. And how can I tell tonight? That what I'm engaged in, that what I do, is indeed being done for Jesus. Now, as I said last night, I've gotten the habit of giving my outline. Let me give it. If I don't finish it, you at least have the outline if the tape runs out and before I get done. I go to some of these places and they got these little old short tapes. Amen. They don't, you know, they, 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 they you know, little old sermonettes about all in a whole, but I, I know you don't hear because I've gotten some of your tapes and I've listened to some of your preachers preaching. <laughs> Every time I'm around here, I, I'm a beggar. I done, first night, I got after him about something that I knew he'd preached. And I said, hey, I need those. I need them to listen for my edification, but I get around where they don't know him. I got me some new sermons. Amen. <laughs> Okay, so somebody here hadn't heard this preacher preach, he can do it, amen. But are you listening? Let me give you this little, little old outline that, uh, and it, I, I think I've even mentioned it in another sermon, but I want to use it tonight. It fits here. How can I tell, according to this passage, that what I do is indeed being done for Christ? First of all, let me just suggest these three things, and I want to comment a little bit, at least on one of them in a little bit more detail. But if I'm doing what I do for Jesus, I will do it without counting the cost. Secondly, I'll do it without caring for the criticism. I mean, I won't let the critics stop me if, if, if I'm doing it for Jesus. But if, if, my, 
You know, if I've got my own agenda and I'm trying to promote Wilbur Hart and somebody doesn't praise me and brag on me, and especially if they criticize me, I mean, I'll whine about it and, and want to quit. Show me somebody, when they get criticized a little, they're ready to quit. Their motivation was probably wrong to start with. They was wanting somebody to commend them. And when they got criticism instead of commendation, I mean, it'll nearly kill you. But if you're doing it for him, you hear him whispering to you sometimes and said, I'm going to take care of that. You don't have to lower yourself to the little mean level of these critics and uh, what you engaged in is too big a cause. Don't, don't let them pull you down and start fighting back. Keep your eye on the goal. And if a man's doing what he's doing, as Mary was in her worship, lavishing her love upon him here, and the murmuring and the complaining and the critical remarks, it doesn't even faze her apparently. She just keeps on doing what she's doing. Without counting the cost, without caring, or if you want to use the word, without considering the criticism. But this is sweet to me. She did what she did without comprehending the consequences. Oh, here we are all these years later. And Jesus to that little crowd said, What she has done is going to be spoken of as a memorial throughout the whole world. Now, her motivation wasn't to get, to get recognition and to get honor. No, that wasn't her recognition. I mean, her, 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 her response there and her goal was to worship Him. And He steps in and says, let me tell you, wherever this gospel, and there in that little group of people, Jesus said this message is going to go around the world. The whole world. And what she has done shall be spoken of. For memorial of her. So I suggest, if you do what you do for Jesus, you'll be doing it without comprehending. You'll never, you, you won't have any way of coming to understand and know about how far reaching your influence can be. And whose lives God may let you touch and influence them for Him. So let's just look at this for a moment. What she did. Mark says that this Oil, this spikenard, it was oil of spikenard. I'm told by people that know about such things, it was one of the most expensive of the oils that could be bought in that day. Very few, few people possessed this. It had to be imported. It was not, it, it was not native to that land. It came from India. And most of the time, only wealthy, extreme wealthy people possessed a spikenard. No indication that this woman is otherwise, when you learn about that family, they don't appear to be, you know, real wealthy people. But she's got a pound of that. And she's kept it for this purpose. And here she is. She breaks this box and she pours this expensive ointment on the head and on the feet of Jesus. Are you listening? If I do what I do... And if indeed I'm doing it for Jesus, I'll do it without counting the cost. Without sitting down and saying, man, that's going to cost me too much. Well, I couldn't go there. Man, that's, that's going to be taxing upon me. That's going to be requiring too much from me. I talked to a young man in a meeting just recently. Has a brilliant mind. More than that, he has a, he has a broken heart for God. Oh, I mean, and I'd heard that some members of his family that maybe didn't quite understand, not to him to discourage him, but I was told by someone else behind his back, they've sort of whispered and wondering if he's not going to waste that brilliant mind. I mean, he's, they said he was headed to be a corporate attorney, probably one of the best in the country. And God laid hold of him and broke him. Oh, you get around him now? God's presence on him. Boy, I get around somebody like that. I hang around them. Amen. I get around some of that other crowd. I say, Lord, let me get away from them quick as I can. Amen. See, it's highly contagious. And he wanted to pray with me. You ought to heard him when he cried out to God. And he was in a situation already that, oh, what he had coming to him. And he just backed away from it. 
When someone wanted to underwrite, he said, no. He said, that might be, and his word was a temptation for me to lean on it. He said, I can't please God without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And he said, I don't, whatever else happens to me, if I displease God, I'm in trouble. Oh, it spoke to me. That just something grips me. I get around somebody like that, and I feel like I've never, it's never cost me anything. I've never paid any kind of price to serve God. And yet I come and I look at a person like Mary that's our example tonight. And what she's doing. Oh, she's involved in something that's costing her. It's expensive. It's precious. And yet she doesn't hold back any of it. She just takes it all and lavishes it on the Lord. Are you listening? Did you know true love? Now listen to me carefully. Don't miss what I'm saying. You can gauge it even on the human level if it's, if it's true love. It's always lavish. And even some people may think wasteful. You just think about it. Somebody you really love. Oh, you'll, you'll do it out if you have to, to do something for somebody you love. Your love motivates you to do that. Oh, and people don't understand that. Oh, they, they think that's a waste. But see, they just don't understand what's motivating you to do it. And old Judas, he couldn't understand Mary. Mary, she's found three times in the Bible. An interesting thing, every time you find her, she's at the same place. She's at the feet of Jesus. Every time, find her one place at his feet, at his feet, she's listening to his word. She finds her blessing there in his word. The next time you find her, she's at his feet with her burden, with a broken heart. And here in John, she's at his feet giving her best and just lavishing her love upon our Lord. Mary, what an example. And she says to my heart, here's a way you can take a little inventory and you can gauge your own service and just ask yourself a question. I'm not just talking about preaching or singing. That's involved, of course, but not everybody in this building serves God in a sphere of preaching or singing. Uh, I'm talking about... in, in. Every aspect of our living for God, our giving, our witnessing, our praying, everything we do for Him as servants to Him. You see, if you're doing it for Him, it won't be too costly to give Him some time in the morning. Get alone this book. It won't be too expensive to have a quiet time. It won't be too expensive to spend enough time day by day to get to know Him in this Word. You won't even think twice about if He prompts you to witness whether or not they're going to hurt your feelings and embarrass you. No, if you're doing it because you love it, you'll just do it. And when I check myself and I'm a little, you know, I'm a little intimidated and and I'm guarding my own self and afraid they're going to ridicule me, you know what's wrong with me, I'm not doing it for Him. Stops on the throne. I'm afraid I'm going to get my own feelings hurt. I told you I'm preaching it to me tonight. And yet this just searches us. And when we do what we do, and do it for Jesus, we'll do it without counting the cost. And I said a moment ago, you can, even on the human level, I, I, I try not to, certain days I try not to be gone from home. And one of them is, is an anniversary. And you can get in trouble if you're not at home on your anniversary. <laughs> and when I take my annual schedule, I usually, and I, you look at my schedule tonight, and for this next year, around that day, it just said, I made myself a note and said, our day. My wife, because I got mixed up last time, I didn't know this, but she went back and looked in some of my stuff a while back, and she saw my next year calendar, my pocket calendar I carry with me, and she, she just, she turned to that month. <laughs> she came back in the kitchen where I was at, is the breakfast time. She said, I saw your schedule back there. And I said, what are you doing people around my time? <laughs> She said, our stuff. Amen. <laughs> and then she is sweet to me. She said, she said, I noticed you put our day. Well, I, I got mixed up last year. I'd had to reschedule some meetings. I'd had to be out. The doctor pulled me aside a while. And it wasn't in the spring. I had to be pulled aside in the spring. But I was pulled aside in the fall. The anniversary was in, in October. And... Uh, 
so I, I had to be gone and was coming in on a uh, two days after. So I was, you know, trying to tell her, now we're going to make up for this. Her favorite place to go is Ruth Crisp. I don't know if we have a Ruth Crisp steakhouse in this area or not, but that's, that's, that's her place. That's our, that's, that's where we need to go on that day, she said. And uh, so I was gone. Man, uh, I, I'm in the mountains, a mountain state, way, way, way back in the mountain. And I said, well, boy, i got to try to get myself off of the hook. And, and, you know, and I fixed up and got something together. And I said, I'm going to make sure that it gets there, you know, that day. And took off on that day. And I had two days to get there. And took off over there. And it was a holiday, and I didn't know it. it. wasn't one of the biggies. It wasn't one of the big holidays. It's just a holiday that the mail wasn't running. There's one there in October, you know. And I pulled in there, and I know it opened at 8 o'clock, and the sign said close. And I said, great day, close. Well, the next place, the biggest town, is way over in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm in western North Carolina, back there in the mountains. And I said, man, what's this thing closed for? <laughs> and I got out there and looked, and I said, oh, God, all of them's closed. <laughs> Man, I, I, boy, I was back early the next morning. I mean, just as soon as they opened. I went in. I told a little lady there. And there was just a couple of people in there. I was first met, got in there talked to her. And I said, listen, I'm in trouble. I need something in Indianapolis tomorrow. <laughs> she said, can't help you. <laughs> I said, you got to help me. <laughs> she laughed and she said, uh, you, it, oh, I said, I said, don't you have, can't you, can I mail something here? And no, she said, really, it's not. She said, Where's the fellow listening? He said, wait a minute, man, we can help you. And I said, boy, I hope you can. He said, let me just check. He said, yeah. He said, we can, we can hand deliver something. We can tell you within an hour when it gets there. You can even track it. And and if it's not there, it won't cost you a dime. I said, man, that sounds good. (laughs) What time you get there? He said, between 10 and 11 a.m. I said, it'll be good. And, but he said, it's going to cost you. I'm talking about without the cost, but you, and I'm going to be honest with you, I asked him how much. <laughs> he told me, and I said, well, <laughs> I said, send her off. Well, there was a, one of the boys right there, he'd, he'd been with me on lunch, and he'd, uh, you know, he's uh, one of those country boys right there that comes over and we fellowship a little, he's a young fellow. And he knew that I was on the spot. And he said to me a little later in the day, he said, that, was you able to send that thing? And he put it thing. Able to send that thing home to you? I said, yep, they're going to get it there in the morning. Whoo, he said, that's fast. He said, I bet that cost you a lot of money, didn't it? <laughs> I told him, he said, whoo. <laughs> he said, man, that's expensive. I said, it's cheaper than alimony, Amen. <laughs> No, seriously, I, you've heard me say this, and, and I tell her this. best thing that happened to me, of course, when God saved me. But the second best thing that ever happened to me is when God gave me my precious wife. And I mean that with all of my soul. And she knows I mean that. Are you listening? Oh, you can gauge whether or not you're doing something for Him because you love Him. Because you'll do it without counting the cost. Preacher that's helped me through the years in his writing is Dr. Jobbit, J.H. Jobbit. Dr. Jobbit talked to preachers a lot. Dr. Jobbit said something that I, I copied years ago, and he said to a group of, of student preachers, he said, Listen, he said, Young man, listen to this. He said, Service that costs you nothing will accomplish nothing. Does it cost us any time weeping before God? Does it cost us any time in this book? Does it cost us any time in brokenness praying? Oh, we try to serve Him without costless anything. And it'll fall flat. A distinctive verse for Paul. He's my hero of the New Testament. Listen to what he says. I think it's one of the secrets. Second Corinthians. And I don't want to get sidetracked, but just listen to what he says in Second Corinthians. Church that was a little suspect of him. And he, it's really him, Second Corinthians, he had to just sort of defend who he was at times. And those that was trying to undermine him was telling that church at Corinth that, he, that his motives was a low motive. He's trying to get something from them. Chapter 12 and verses 14, 15, he said to them, he, he, he said, no. He said, I, I'm not going to be burdensome to you. I'm not seeking yours. I'm not, I'm not seeking what you can do for me. And then listen to verse 15. He said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. 
Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Boy, I read that. I think the greatest credential to Christianity is the Apostle Paul. I read that and I say, hallelujah. That was a secret of Paul's. Paul said, no, here's a church that they, they, they've undermined him. They've tried to, those Judaizers and others, and said, he don't care about you. And he said, let me tell you, I'm not after something that you have that I can get. I'm after you. I want you for the Lord. And said, I, he didn't say, I'll just spend. He said, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. So tonight, if you do what you do, you do it for Jesus. You'll do it without counting the cost. And I just simply mentioned these last two words. You'll do it without caring for the criticism. What do you, what do you do? Where do you go with your criticism? How do you handle it? I looked at a verse this afternoon. You may want to just jot it down. It's a help to me. It's Isaiah 54, 17. He says, no weapon that's formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. You don't have to go around fighting those little critics that's trying to stop you. Anytime there's a church like this great church with a hand of God on it, and you've accepted a vision, you're going to go follow it. Not everybody's going to praise you. Not everybody's going to run by and slap you on the back. You're going to hear criticism and ugly remarks a whole lot. Stay, just keep your eye on Jesus. I had the privilege of being a part of a people of God's ascended tonight, and God just graciously, we didn't deserve it, but He put His hand on that work, and God started blessing, and He started moving. It was less than 50, and we went there, and He went to 100, 200, 300, 400, up to 1,000 people would come in there. And not ever one of the brethren. I don't say that to put anybody down. And I trust I'm not coming across with, you know, sour grapes and self pity. But I'd hear things from some that I'd never done anything. And it'd be ugly. Well, look how they're getting them over there. Look. And God seemed to say to me when the head, you better not lower yourself and start fighting back. You see, he told, told me in those days about Nehemiah when they're trying to get him down. Nehemiah wouldn't. He said, there's a, there's a work I'm involved in and I'm not going to get out away from this work. So if they're going to find, and, and I had 12 deacons and I had three full-time staff members, uh, associates with me and had some other people in part-time positions that we paid part-time salaries and, and helped us in leadership in areas. And I'd have those staff meetings and I'd say to them, listen, if, we, if you engage in fighting back your critics, you're going to disqualify yourself. And you can't stay in leadership with us if you get ugly and mean. And get an old critical spirit. Because you won't be full of the Spirit of God doing that. You agree with the Spirit of God in a minute. If you start fighting God's servants and getting critical and in our arrogance and self-righteous and we feel like God's raised us up to criticize everybody. Oh, listen to me tonight. Here's a woman did what she did. And she did it for Jesus, and she did it without caring for the criticism. They just, she just let them, let them carpet her. Murmur. I had a young preacher say to me, Brother Hurt, I wrote that down. You mind if God lets me use that? I said, help yourself. He said, I don't quite understand that word murmur. What's that mean? I said, well, look and see what Webster says about it. He said, do you know what he said? Yeah, I know what he said. Webster said it's a low growl. You know, it's not an outburst. Yeah, just a little growl. Don't let that get to you. You buddy growling around. Amen? Now, you, some of you know this. My glass is off. I'm blind. I can't see past the front row. I can't see clearly. I mean, this is way up here. I, somebody asked me about your this, this new building and everything. I said, man, platform's so high, about gives you nosebleed up here. Amen? <laughs> said, man, boy, you up here, you up here preaching, and, and I really commend it. I love this place. But are you listening? Oh, don't, don't let your critics stop you. And, and, and if you ever do anything for God, somebody's going to criticize you. The late Dr. Lakin, he used to say to preachers, he said, I, I can tell you how you can never, ever have one critic. He said, know nothing, do nothing, and have nothing, and they'll leave you alone. Amen. <laughs> Never have a thing, never do a thing, and don't know anything. And there won't be anybody to criticize you. 
He said, the time you begin to know a little something, do a little something, and possess a little something, some of these old critics are going to get after you. <laughs> the late President Harry Truman, he had an interesting way of responding to his critics. And, and they said he did. I was reading about him. I have a brother that reads such, such things all the time, and he, he, had his, he had his life story. I said, I don't have time to read it. Just, you know. He said, listen, it. I, I've got to put it on, put it to... Put in your car and listen to it. And I was listening to some of them. It was interesting. And the late uh, Truman, and he had his critics, and he had a lot of them. And uh, uh, one that's uh, telling us about him said, uh, you know, oftentimes, especially, you know, his harsh critics, he, he, he'd respond to them. And he'd, he'd send a letter to them, and he'd say something like this, my dear sir, and he'd write, you know, write him a personal letter. He said, I just thought you ought to know this. He said, somebody is writing a real ugly letter and signing your name to it. And said, I thought you ought to know about it. And send that note to him. <laughs> well, that might be an idea. Amen. I close by saying this. Without counting the cost, if, if, you, if we follow Mary without caring for the criticism, and then... You'll be doing what you do without comprehending the consequences. Pardon me for being so personal here. I have her name written down. I got a phone call. And a man uh, identified himself and, and, and said, pardon me for calling you so early. It was between 5 and 6 a.m. on Monday morning, somewhere around 5.30, I think. He said, you don't know me, preacher. Gave me his name and said, let me tell you my wife's name before she became my wife. And I think you recognize her name. And he did. And I said, sure. Yeah, I know Kathy. And he said, uh, Kathy's dying, Pastor Hurt. And she's asking for you to come see her. I hadn't seen that young lady in years. He said, let me tell you, and I feel you. And he said, we unplugged a machine last night. This was Monday morning. And said, the doctor said, when anything else they could do, and life support was just keeping her alive, so it's not her, it's the machine. And he said she would probably be gone in the most a couple hours, but he said she didn't die. She woke up. And she's alert. He said, I don't imply she's well. She's not. But she's alert. It's amazed everybody. She has no concept of the time. She don't know it's so early, but she just said to me, they called me Preacher Hurt when I was her preacher. She said, call Preacher Hurt. I need to say something to him. He said, would that be asking too much? And I didn't know her husband. I hadn't seen any of them in years. I was their pastor in my first pastorate, the early part of it. And... Uh, he said, uh, she's wondering if you could come. And I said, I, I, where I live, I could get there. The time I get presentable, it'll probably take me 30 minutes to be there at the Methodist Hospital downtown Indianapolis. He told me where he'd meet me, and he, he went with me to where she was at. She's 40 years old. Uh, shocking to look at her. Just a skeleton. A little emaciated body, and they, they have her... Propped up kindly there. Eyes back in sockets. Hair's gone. But her voice just is clear. Her mind was clear. And she said, Brother Hurt, they told me what time is this. And she said, I'm so sorry we got you out here so early. I said, Kathy, that, man, I, you don't need to apologize to me. And she said, I, I supposed to, and she didn't say die. She said, I understand that I supposed to already be in heaven. But the Lord didn't want me to go right then. And said, from what they tell me, they don't even understand why, how I'm still living. I mean, doctor told me later, walked out and I talked to one of the attendants. Uh, he was not a primary doctor, but he is a doctor around there. And, and he said, it's amazing. Everybody, they brought some people in. Tonight, it just couldn't imagine. I said, that woman's got so much against her. But I've said that to say this. You know what she said to me? She said, Brother Hurt, I want you to pray. But I didn't ask you to come out here to pray that God will heal me. I think I'm going to be going to heaven here in a little bit. She said, but it's been a long time since I thanked you for coming 
by our home on a Tuesday night and telling my alcoholic mother and me and my brother that Jesus loves us. And she said, I just wanted, before I go to heaven's way she put it, she said, I just wanted to thank you again. Oh, I tell you, it broke my heart. I said, God bless you, Kathy. I knelt down beside that dying woman's bed, and I tell you, God came in that room. Her, her husband's a deacon, told me the church they go to, another 40-mile direction, and he's a deacon. They serve faithfully in that church. And she said, Brother Hurt, that night I was 10 years old. Mother was ugly to you. You just out. It was on the poor stairs of our city. I, it was, I was out by myself. Just somebody called cold turkey visitation. Just going from door to door. In that poor neighborhood. We run buses in that neighborhood. And I just knocked on the door. She was so ugly and abrupt and hateful and mad at God. And I, she said, well, the hurt, she said, I felt bad for you, but you stood there and took it and was still kind to mother. And said, God broke mother's heart. And she invited you in. And mothers, you know, got down on her knees and got saved. She said, do you remember what I said to you? And I said, I do, Kathy. She said, would God save me? I'm ten year old and I don't want to go to hell. Would He save me too? And I said, yes, He will. Who'd ever known that Tuesday night? Just out knocking on some doors. Thirty a little over thirty years later. God's going to let me stand by that little girl just before she goes to heaven and hear her say, I appreciate you coming and tell them that Jesus loved us. You'll never comprehend the consequences of what you do if you're doing it for Jesus. Would you stand with us, please? All over the room, we're standing. Thank you for your prayerful attention. The pastor's coming. My voice is a little weak tonight. I want to kneel tonight out of a sense of gratitude. God's been so good to this unworthy preacher. I, I'd never brag about my past. I was a wicked man. God forbid me to talk about that. But oh, He came to me through someone that loved Him. Someone that was sold out to Him. They, they came to me with the message of the Gospel. And God broke my heart. I'd had people preach to me and put me down. Tell me, if you don't straighten up, God's going to get you and all of that. That's not the gospel. And, and, and that, oh, that was repulsive to me. That offended me. I'd fight them back. The gospel's good news. And the gospel is the power of God. Oh, there's another side, and we're to preach that. But the gospel's the power of God unto salvation. And the love of God. The goodness of God. The Bible said, bringeth them in to, to, to repentance. And when that man started talking to me about how good God is and how much Jesus loved me, it just broke my heart. And I, didn't, I, I couldn't resist it. I just said, I just gave up. And tonight in this room, some of us, we used to tell the story. It's been a long time since we shared it. Just shared it from our heart. Could it be our motivation of service has got out of focus and we're not really doing it for Him now? Maybe we'll just make a trip. Some of us have every night. Come and talk to him. Father, seal your truth. Don't let the enemy snatch the seed away from us. Seal it to our hearts as good ground, hearts that's open and receptive, and then bring a harvest for your glory. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.